You are now listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K, produced by the Carson Institute, which aims to provide a conversational space to discuss, debate, and explore answers to America's most urgent questions on racial, economic, and social injustice. I'm joined now by Jamel Bowie, a columnist for the New York Times opinion section and a political analyst for CBS News. Uh, Mr. Bowie has been called one of the defining commentators on politics and race in the Trump era. Mr. Bowie, how are you? Thank you for joining us. I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I am as well. And I just want to get started because there's so much to discuss. We pulled your columns and folks, we do have links to Mr. Bowie's columns on our Facebook page and our Carson Institute page. You wrote when your column is no such good thing as a Trump voter, good Trump voter. People voted for racists who promise racist outcomes. They don't deserve your empathy. Can you talk a little bit about what you meant by that? And now that we have the long eye of history, whether what you wrote has indeed proved to be true. Sure. Well, that was that was a very controversial column when I wrote it. My editor gave it that very memorable headline, um, which I'm sure contributed to that. So I was writing... I wrote that column, I don't know if you remember, um, and this, this for you, for the audience, I don't know if you remember that immediately after the 2016 election, there's obviously lots of writing about what happened, how did Trump get elected, who were his voters. And there was this pushback um, against those of us who identified or those or anyone who identified Trump's campaign with racist appeals. And the pushback was something like, it is unfair to describe the people who voted for Trump as being tolerant of racism or racist themselves, what happened, it, or what have you. It is unfair to uh, tie their vote uh, to anything particular about Trump, and we have to sort of understand them on their own terms. Now, I, I agree then, and I agree now that you have to understand people on their own terms, certainly, but I, I disagree that we should sort of disregard the actual consequences of voting Trump into office, that this isn't some game. Trump actually campaigned on sort of racial antagonism towards a whole host of groups and promised to deliver that in office. And one of my strange, I think, I think this might be counterintuitive to people, but I, th I think that is true and that I think people should internalize, which is that what presidential candidates say on the trail is what they're going to try to do, especially things they repeat often and frequently. So if a candidate, and to, to give a non-controversial example, George W. Bush talked constantly about reforming education in its 2000 campaign. And sure enough, in 2001, the first major bill from his White House was No Child Left Behind. Barack Obama talked constantly about unity and about coming together and bipartisanship. And sure enough, he basically let his administration be held hostage to uh, unfair demands in this in service of bipartisanship. And so Donald Trump, if he's talking constantly about, you know, banning Muslims and kicking out immigrants, then you should probably assume that what he's going to do, or he's going to try to do those things. And if if the people who vote for him heard those things and, and cast the ballot, then at the very least, they didn't find them particularly offensive or particularly worrisome. And it, pretty good chance they affirmatively supported that. And so the, the point of the column was simply to say, 
you know, over the next four years, people are going to suffer under this guy and not sort of the general suffering that happens in American society, but specific suffering inflicted on specific people because that's part of his political platform. And when we're thinking about who deserves our empathy or our sympathy in this moment, it shouldn't be with the people who put this guy in the office. It should be with the people who are going to bear the brunt of their decision to put that guy in office. And I think, you know, looking back at that column four plus years later, I think that column holds up pretty well. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, one of the ongoing stories of the administrator of the Trump presidency was the, the stronghold he had over his voters, the strong commitment his voters had to him, um, the his attempt to use the office of the presidency to inflict that this harm on people he deemed as other and you know, unworthy of being in the country. And if you look at all the thi- all those things, I think the argument to the column that these are the consequences of electing Trump, that his supporters either look the other way or actively agree with them, that there's no there's no contradiction or there's no tension in someone being decent to their friends and neighbors and also supporting horrible things in their politics. I think those things all, all, all uh, bore themselves out over the last four years. And so I think that column stands up pretty well as far as the things I wrote in 2016 goes. Now, prior to that column, there was a sense that there was a white lash taking place, that Donald Trump's election was a response to having the first black man in the White House. Can you talk a little bit about that and how we got to the point that Donald Trump actually did win the election, or at least the Electoral College votes? Right. And along with everything else, there's been this four-year argument about how we got Trump. And my, my, I think my perspective in 2016, and thank you for these questions, by the way, because I have not really thought much about what I wrote in 2016. So now I'm actually like thinking about it and kind of going through it relative to, you know, the, how I've grown these last four years. But um, I think in 2016, my view was actually a pretty kind of like mechanistic black president gets elected it's like a psychic wound to a lot of white americans who just can't you know square the nation's sort of like you know father figure being a black man and produces a backlash and i don't think that's like wrong in the broad strokes but i do think it's probably a little more complicated than that in part because there's a lot of stuff that contributed to it was part of it wasn't part of it that's worth kind of pulling out so for example um if you look at the voters who switched from obama to trump 2012 to 2016 it's about 9% of the electorate a large percentage of those voters and i forget the exact number but a large percentage had actually started voting for Republicans in congressional elections several years before Trump. And so kind of the partisan switch happened not in 2015 or 2016, but in 2013 and 2014. And these voters also have really high levels of racial resentment, which is the political science term for kind of just being a a racist. Um, And so that for me, that was like learning that I think I, that that data was coming through in 2017, learning that it's like, well, what is, what could have happened that would have prompted 
a backlash that wasn't Obama and that led people to vote for Trump after voting for Obama? And the answer is it's Black Lives Matter. That Ferguson, the uprising in Baltimore the following year, all these things were high salience events that really activated, it really began to divide people along not on not necessarily on racial lines, but on how racially resentful they were. Um, and then primed a set of voters to want to support more candidates who are more hostile to those movements. And then you have Trump, who had Trump been like Mitt Romney or like John McCain, which is to say a Republican who believes all the Republican things, but doesn't so much campaign on race, except in subtle ways. I don't think it would have made that much of a difference. So it's not it's not like a mechanical thing. Like they, what what was required in this was a candidate like Trump who actively encouraged people to think in racist ways, who actively campaigned on racial resentment and said basically to the electorate, if you have these feelings, you should vote for me. I'm your candidate. Um, and so there's there's the element of backlash or the white lash there. But I think it's also important, and I've come to really strongly believe this, that individual choices matter too. And so a choice by a, a different Republican candidate may have produced a different outcome in that election, right? It wasn't like foregone that um, there's going to be an electoral white lash in 2016. And on the, on the other side, um, I think it's probably true that the fact that Hillary Clinton ran a campaign so heavily tied to identity helped kind of polarize the electorate along those lines. Mm-hmm. And so you had voters who, again, had, had, had it been Mitt Romney and you could, you know, this guy wants to cut taxes and wants to help the rich. Some of those racially resentful voters may have stayed with the Democrats because they're racially resentful, but they like Medicare, they like Social Security. Um, but a, a Clinton campaign that emphasized identity and a Trump campaign that emphasized identity ends up telling voters to vote along the lines of identity. And that's, I think that's what happened. Now, after that, right, like it's sort of, I, I sort of think that the, the white last aspect of all of this becomes stronger after that, because after the election, after, you know, he's in office and people can see what he's doing, there's still this strong attachment to him. Um, and there's, you know, there are other Republicans mimicking him and you see the racial and education divide kind of polarize even more, mm-hmm. um, which leaves you in a place like we were last year, where despite losing by 7 million votes, Trump does kind of win, you know, most white voters and does so in such a way that he could have won the presidency again if a few people flipped in a few states. He could have won the Electoral College again. Um, so, yeah, that's, I think that's where I am on this sort of granting and agreeing that racial backlash is part of the story is a big part of the story um that in kind of the broad strokes you can't really understand the trump phenomena without having a sense of the push and pull of racial politics in the united states of the extent to which you know racism just isn't negative opinions or views it isn't just bias or bigotry but it's you know to 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 borrow from uh like Karl Marx it's like a relation of production it's like a way it's a part of 
how our society is structured and how people relate not just to themselves and each other, but relate to kind of the various hierarchies and, and class systems we have in the country. And so Trump is like clearly playing on all of this stuff and kind of tying tying the notion of prosperity, right, to racial homogeneity, right? Like if you want America to be strong again, then America needs to be less brown. He's doing all of that. Um, but it's all contingent too. So different people make different choices and maybe you don't, maybe he's not president, right? He, you know, um, and I think that's important too, because I think the risk of a, and I'm very much inclined to like structural views of things, but I think the risk of a, an intensely structural view of things is it can kind of occlude the role of human agency in these things and the extent to which nothing actually is um, preordained and individual choices do matter. We all exist in a matrix of context and, you know, possibilities, um, but our individual decisions do matter. And that's important too. Now, can you frame um, something that you just kind of tapped in? You talked a bit about Black Lives Matter uh, during the Obama presidency and, and how that became an issue. Can you frame that against what I call Black Lives Matter 2.0, which is what we went through last year with, you know, the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and the increased intention on what was happening to unarmed Black people in the street in a very different way in which people responded to it, you know, the first time we were having this discussion, that's that's I find all of this so fascinating because it's it gets to it gets to a bunch of different things. The first the first thing for me at least is how nothing like, <laughs> politics and political life are so unpredictable. Like you, I would never guessed at the beginning of twenty twenty that we would have seen something like the George Floyd protest at all. Um, and the ways in which it's unpredictable are themselves unpredictable. So the death of Michael Brown produces a bunch of young activists mm -hmm. uh, in Ferguson and around the country who over the next several years are both the subject of a lot of media attention, but are also doing lots of organizing work or doing organization building or kind of building a network of like-minded people. And when the particular circumstances of 2020 hit, not just um, the killing of George Floyd specifically and kind of the, the, the way that video I think really was, was shocking in a, way that, in a way that many videos are, but I think this one was particularly shocking to the conscience of a lot of people because it was impossible to deny. Um, it was impossible to imagine a context in which this would have been okay. So not just the video, but then the pandemic, everyone's cooped up inside and frustrated and anxious. Uh, and then also, you know, President Trump, by being him, has engendered this polarization of the white electorate specifically along racial resentment lines. And so people high in racial resentment have become really pro-Trump and people low in it have become very anti-Trump kind of across partisan dimensions. Um, and then you also have a, a corresponding education polarization. So people with college degrees and higher have become extremely democratic. And people without college degrees have become more Republican. You add all these things together and you do suddenly have this like explosive combination that, that I think produces um, the initial protests. And then they take on a life of their own, right? Uh, police officers across the country somehow, not somehow, 
predictably don't take the lessons of 2014 and 2015 and how to approach these things and take a very aggressive and confrontational stance towards protests, a sort of a stance of almost how dare you ask me to behave better than I am. And this in turn kind of generates more protester energy uh, in response. And um, the kind of political cultural class, you know, the president obviously is opposed, but much of the political cultural class looking to younger people as future consumers, as future voters, so on and so forth, end up being supportive of the protest, however superficial that may be, which in turn kind of gives them more energy. And so it's, it's a bunch, it's, you can, <laughs> if like the first, the first domino, right, is an 18 year old in St. Louis, Missouri, or outside of St. Louis, Missouri, getting shot, um, and the, the, the block at the end is a nationwide protest that ends up, you know, including up around 15 million people and possibly you know, changing the, traje- the trajectory of American politics. So it's, yeah, that's, I, th- I think it's an answer to your question. Um, I think that's sort of, that's how I, that's how I understand the two in relation, the, the Black Lives Matter 1.0 being basically priming the ground in a lot of ways for what took place last year. Um, and in turn, what take, took place last year is going to have consequences that we won't be able to predict. And we'll just, we'll see them when they see them. Once they happen, we'll be able to say in retrospect, oh, okay, this is the causal pattern here. This is what influenced that. But in the moment, we'll be like, wow, this is sudden and unexpected. And who knew this was going to happen? So with Black Lives Matter 2.0 happening, the pandemic happening, kind of the you know the racial war in a sense, at least around ideals happening in the country, could anybody other than Joe Biden have won this election if any of the other candidates had made it to that point? That's so that's so interesting to think about. Um, I don't I don't know because I think yeah. First, I'm just gonna say I don't know. Um, so what, what I'm about to follow is just a bunch of idle speculation. Um, but I want to say I, I, I do not know if another candidate could have won. Um, I say that for, for two reasons. The first, just looking at the results, is that Trump lost and he lost by 7 million votes. But again, if you flip, I think it's like if 80,000 votes are different between the five swing states, then he wins the Electoral College again. And the Republican Party, although it lost after the Georgia elections, it ended up holding on much better than anyone expected um, going into the elections that there was, you know, there, there seemed to be, um, it wasn't, it wasn't a pro-Trump electorate, but it was a much more pro-Trump electorate than I think people expected. And so in that circumstance, right. If this were a landslide defeat, like a truly landslide defeat where, you know, Democrats, expand majorities in the house and win you know 57 seats in the senate and it's kind of just like a a total wipeout then yeah maybe anyone could have won but given how narrow it was really it's possible that maybe biden was the only guy um, or someone like biden and i think the thing that biden had or has is that he is you know he is he's an old center white guy who doesn't threaten anyone really um and so 
or to to make make him out to be threatening, you have to basically manufacture for swing booters like these like lurid fantasies about it. But just at first glance, he's not particularly threatening to the kinds of voters that um, swing between the two parties. So, and in, in in a time when there's lots of upheaval and uncertainty, kind of this um, this traditional figure who's not Trump. Trump, who's associated with chaos and disorder and all these things, uh, can be really appealing. There's a there's a aphorism about British politics, but it's um you know the people want uh, Tory men and Whig measures, meaning they want straight laced traditional conservative looking politicians who do things um, that are forward thinking and a little progressive or like the American version of this, which is that voters are dispositionally conservative and operationally liberal. I think that that's what Biden basically offers to the electorate, moderate to liberal policies in a conservative looking package. And there weren't very many candidates who could do that. Um, Now change the context in which the election's happening, let's say no pandemic or whatever, then it's all, very different. But I think the combination of upheaval and pandemic and then kind of general Trumpiness does really mitigated in favor of someone like Biden. I live in Virginia. I was born, no, I wasn't born in Virginia, but I was raised in Virginia uh, and very parochial about the state. And so I like to analogize everything to Virginia politics and what this election what last election reminded me most of was Virginia's gubernatorial elections in 2017 when the guy who won, Ralph Northam, was kind of just like a a guy, you know, <laughs> just like an old, you know, he voted for Bush in 2004. He's from the Eastern Shore, which is sort of known for its conservatism, kind of just like a, a conservative seeming guy. And for a variety of reasons, not least among them, the fact that he may have been in blackface in college. Ralph Northam has felt, seemed to have felt some obligation to actually uh, do stuff for his constituents, and he's turned out to be pressured to be a pretty decent governor. Um, And I wouldn't be surprised if something like that happens with Biden, just kind of the nature of the coalition he leads and the circumstances the country's in, maybe may push him towards those uh, Whig measures, so to speak. I mean, it would be interesting to kind of see what happens. I know it's all speculative to think about what would have happened if we didn't have a pandemic, if we didn't have Black Lives Matter 2.0, but but it's hard to look through that lens because so much right. has happened. Um, leading up to January 6th, because I, I want to get to that, I would like you to talk a little bit about reactionary extremism in the Republican Party that you kind of you know talk about in, in one of your columns. Yeah, it's uh, let me figure out where to start here. So, the 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 tricky thing about talking about the Republican Party in the Trump years has been to simultaneously note what is distinctive about Trump and his coalition, but also not go too far in the direction of saying, "Well, all this is a unique and unprecedented," because it isn't. So much of what Trump represents so much of what his coalition is has very clear antecedents in the history of the country and history of the republican party and the recent history of the republican party and so you know to use one example 
Trump's indifference to the pandemic is not a, is of a of a similar scale and certainly similar consequence as Ronald Reagan's indifference to the AIDS epidemic, right? It's the same kind of wishful thinking, the same kind of anti-science attitudes, the same kind of disdain for expertise that has that characterized Trump's um, pandemic response. Uh, the, you know, the monomaniacal obsession with tax cuts from the Republican Party today um, clearly it has its roots in the Reagan year. I mean, you can, you can, there's a, a very good documentary on Ronald Reagan called the Reagans, which pretty, I think effectively makes the case that Reagan was more or less like a more polite kind of Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, Trump's racial appeals, right? Uh, Ronald Reagan infamously opened up his campaign uh, in Philadelphia County, Mississippi, where the three civil rights workers had been killed mm-hmm. 17 years earlier, right? So, there's a lot that isn't unique about Trump. So that's, it's always, you always got to like keep that in the back of your mind. But for as distinctive a person he is, he's kind of fitting into trends and fitting in to currents that are longstanding. Having said that, one thing I, I think that, so the Republican Party has always had this relationship with its with right-wing extremists, which is that on one hand, wanting to not have them be the public face of the party. So, you know, conservatives to have a mythology about how William F. Buckley, the founder of National Review, and kind of the kind of the one of the pivotal figures in the uh, development of the conservative movement, um, how Buckley kind of banishes the the John Birch Society from the ranks of mainstream conservatism in the Republican Party. Um, sim- like around the same time, uh, you know, Barry Goldwater loses the 64 election landslide, a, a running for governor of California, Ronald Reagan also distanced himself from the Birchers. You know, this is, this is part of the story the conservative movement tells itself about, tells itself about itself. Um, Nixon, you know, likewise tries to position himself in the middle. But this story coexists with the fact that right-wing extremists were kind of the rank and file of the conservative movement. They were the ones who um, uh, did canvassing and got votes and helped candidates win and wrote letters and um, influenced campaigns from, you know, school board up to the presidency. Uh, Pat Buchanan was Nixon's speechwriter who went on to run for um, president in 1992 against George H.W. Bush and wins the New Hampshire primary and ends up winning like something like 20% of the primary vote. Um, and he's very much kind of like a proto-Trump kind of nationalist, um, uh, white resentment candidate. So you have this part of this 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 right-wing extremism within the Republican Party it's very much part of the Republican Party that is in some ways kind of the lifeblood of the grassroots of the Republican Party but is always kept at a distance and I think what's what's different about the current moment and what what makes Trump distinctive is that he's collapsed the distance entirely mm-hmm. right um, and part of this is I think has happened is through the growth of right-wing media um, that Fox and Breitbart and 
uh, OAN and all those media organizations and such have a powerful hold, powerful hold on the base of the Republican Party on the on the grassroots and have a powerful hold on Trump. He's as much a consumer of them as a shaper of them. And so through this this process, right extreme right wing figures and ideas make their way into conservative media, which make them way to Trump, who then like repeats them and takes them on his own, which in turn influences everyone else and influences media and then reflects back on himself. And this all collapses whatever distance there was between the extreme right and the mainstream right. Um, And when you have the kind of ideological drift of the Republican Party to the right, as generally to the well as well, I think you, you end up in the situation where the mainstream of the Republican Party is kind of just the extreme right at this point um, Mm -hmm. with all that, means and so the the january 6th insurrection right is as much a story about the collapse of those boundaries and how the president is kind of like the instigating factor in the collapse of those those boundaries um and have a thing that's you know it's no longer republican politicians trying to influence their grassroots it's the grassroots the most you know extreme form of the grassroots fed on this right-wing media now basically calling the shots. Uh, I mean, the striking thing to me about the insurrection to this point was that so many people showed up with like their phones and were were streaming and taking selfies and such. Like it was as much a media spectacle for them as it was, uh, you know, a genuine attack on Congress. Um, And I think that's, that's like one of the lenses you have to look at it through. Now, beyond kind of, the influence of media and the collapse of these distinctions. I think it's also sort of the, I mean, we don't know where we are in history. So right, it, it's either the end of the apex of, or the beginning of something, mm-hmm. but it's of the, um, you know, the, the, the distinctive thing about right-wing extremism is sort of its hostility to political equality and, and majoritarian democracy. Um, and that very much a part of this as well that the goal was to disrupt Congress from certifying the winner of the presidential election and in the absence of that they can't accomplish it what the right wing extremists want to do is basically render a democratic led government unable to function Um, and it all goes back to this idea that democratic constituencies, democratic politicians are simply illegitimate and have no right to wield power um, and that too is like become part of the mainstream of American politics. And so you see you know, in the aftermath of the election, Republican lawmakers across the country looking for ways to disenfranchise voters, not because anything went wrong in the election, but because they didn't win. And rather than try to persuade people or win their votes, the solution is just disenfranchise them. With that in mind, because I think that that gets to the heart of how we're trying to figure out what January 6th meant, but also what does it portend for how we go forward, that if it is about delegitimizing uh, the government itself, democracy itself, when Democrats have the power, let's not campaign, let's just 
disenfranchised, which ends up disenfranchising black and brown voters, right? That seems to be where, where the attack button is. So, so what lesson was learned from January 6th, if anything at all, now that, that Trump, of course, is not being held responsible, and I want to get to that. So, so is there a bigger lesson that, that we've learned from January 6th? I, mean, I I don't know what lesson we've learned. What we should have learned is that we got to stop taking this democracy thing for granted. <laughs> that I think there's because because Americans have had at least the form of democratic government for so long, not necessarily the substance, but the form, elections, you know, uh, freedom of speech, this this sort of thing, that everyone takes for granted that it's just always going to be that way. But it very very clearly it's not always just going to be that way we have to actually continue to make it that way and what january 6th should demonstrate to everyone is that there is a substantial and organized group of people some of them hold a lot of power who would rather uh who who are more than prepared to substitute self-government for you know rule by them by for decree by them and they may call it you know no one no one who uh, kills democracy ever say ever says ever says that that's what they're doing, right? So the the January sixth insurrectionists said that they were standing up for the Constitution, they're standing up for their rights. Um, everyone says that the Confederacy said that, right? The Confederacy said it was standing up for the Constitution, uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that trying to overturn duly elected legislature legislators. Um, doing their constitutional duty to certify a duly held election is an attack on democracy. And I think people need to understand that to say these things are fragile is not just kind of, it's not, it's not just a, a throwaway phrase. They actually are very fragile and the erosion of democratic practices, um, it, it can happen very quickly and it takes a long time to build back up the sand uh, I grew up in Virginia Beach, and so a beach metaphor, I guess, works here. Uh, so that's what I, I think people should take away, and I think that has a number of you know implications. The first among them, that maybe you know the paramount duty of elected lawmakers right now, and, and I'm talking about Democrats, is uh, not just to pass COVID relief, but to pass democracy relief to really pass protections for um, our democratic institutions to shore up voting rights, to, you know, push back against extreme partisan gerrymandering, basically to do everything they can to preempt um, a Republican party that has demonstrated its hostility to kind of the norm of political equality that sees nothing wrong with gerrymandering minorities to hold supermajority power and legislate legislators that sees nothing wrong with denying people the vote for arbitrary reasons. So that's kind of, you know, the Democrats were lucky. You could even say blessed to have won those races in Georgia. So they have an opportunity, Mm -hmm. um, the barest opportunity to do something to protect democracy. If only because if only, even if they don't have, even if you are someone in the Senate Democratic caucus who doesn't care about that stuff, at the very least, if you want to be able to win again, then you have to protect your supporters' right to vote. And I think that's kind of the the thing that needs to happen right now. That's, you know, if it doesn't happen now, it may never happen and will be 
brewing and regretting the inaction uh, of this period for a long time. Now, there were people who, when they look at the Senate and they see the 50-50, what they call, they, they call it a balance. We know that that's not quite the right term to use. Um, and then they saw what happened this weekend um, with Donald Trump and the final vote at 57-43. Um, were you surprised by that? W- what is your feeling from that? Like, what does that mean um, for even going forward to do some of the things you just talked about? Democratic relief is not possible unless you're able to, at this point, convince enough Republicans uh, right. to sides for this. So can you talk a bit about that? No, so I wasn't surprised by that. There's, you know, I, I was surprised that it was 57. Right? I, I was surprised that there was so many Republicans at that. I wasn't surprised that they didn't reach 67. Um, you know, a poll came out today and it said something like 75% of Republican voters want Trump to continue to have a large role in the party. And 85% think he should be able to think he should be able and should run for office in the future. So the Republican voting electorate is still all in on Trump. And so you should only expect the Republican Senate caucus to all also be all in and Trump. And beyond that, it's just not clear to me that they think he did anything wrong. Even if even if they aren't afraid of his voters not clear to me they think he did anything wrong um so i'm not i'm not surprised by the outcome i think one thing we should take away is that impeachment is another part of the constitution that very clearly does not work in the context of you know partisan like hyper partisanship and 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 high polarization that the theory behind impeachment was that each branch of the government would uh, kind of jealously guard its own prerogatives. And so you wouldn't just have, you know, a bunch of, you wouldn't just have Congress, you'd have individual lawmakers representing their individual states or districts or what have you, but they would also have an identity as members of Congress that they'd want to protect against an overreaching executive. And what the framers didn't anticipate were political parties as we understand them today, um, political parties that kind of unite interests across branches. And so a Republican senator is going to not necessarily see themselves as a senator. They'll see themselves as a Republican who wants who wants to protect and defend the Republican president, not not as a senator. It doesn't work. And it seems like if you have 34 senators in your pocket, um, you can do whatever you want as president, and there's like no real way to um, remove you. You know, I, I had to say there's no accountability because one thing that is true is that you know Trump acting the way he did made him very unpopular and probably cost him the election. Mm-hmm. So there's that, but that seems like thing rule to me. I think you'd prefer to have a working impeachment mechanism. Uh, so that's that's one takeaway. Um, the other takeaway, and this gets back to what I was saying earlier, listen, Democrats, there's not going to be 10 Republican votes for the things you need to do. Republican votes for the COVID relief bill. There's not going to be Republican votes for HR1, the and SR and uh, SR, I think it's SR1, SB1, um, which are the, the voting rights bills. There's not going to be Republican votes for any of the not just kind of ambitious um, 
gimmies of the democratic agenda, but sort of the necessary stuff that needs to happen to make sure the United States remains something like a democracy. And so Democrats, and specifically Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, need to just... That's what I'm looking for. Need to face reality and kill the filibuster Mm -hmm. and do what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why they were elected. And so they should do it. Now, you just wrote about this in one of your columns. Can you you talk some more about that um, for our students who might not be very familiar with why this is important, why it must be killed? Sure. Um, so kind of the, 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 the mythology of the filibuster, what, I, what I'll call folk civics, the folk civics of the filibuster, is that it's, we have it to make sure that the minority isn't trampled upon in government. The Senate is supposed to be, was George Washington's phrase, the cooling saucer of, of Congress, where bills, where the, the heated passions of the House are... Um, are, are tempered for consideration and the filibuster is part of that. And that it's, it's what it's done over the years is kind of prevent any one side from trampling over the other. So none of that's true. <laughs> um, the filibuster isn't in the constitution. Uh, it isn't outlined in the rules of the Senate. It's kind of a mistake. Uh, a, a minor rules change in 1806 made it theoretically possible to have unlimited debate and no one really realized it until like 30 years later mm-hmm. and then once they realized it even then the general feeling was that people shouldn't do this uh, the, the expectation was that the way people the way the senate worked was that the, a bill would come up they would debate it. And once they've exhausted debate, they would have an up or down vote on it, which is kind of how things should work. Um, so there's no need, no one thought there was any need for filibusters except in the most rare circumstances. But after the Civil War, specifically after you know the, the, the uh, abolition of slavery and the introduction of a black electorate and the attempt to strengthen the federal government to deal with the uh, the problems of reconstruction and the issues of reconstruction, um, you see filibusters kind of emerge against civil rights bills, against voting rights bills, against anti-lynching bills. I mean, this is this is the, the context in which the filibuster has actually been used in American history is basically to shut down attempts at protecting the rights of African Americans. Um, in the modern era beginning in 2007 well i'm skipping a lot like you know it used to be that you couldn't really stop a filibuster someone had to literally be exhausted and not stop talking the senate found this ridiculous so they kept the filibuster but introduced cloture which used to be 67 votes then was lowered to 60 votes in the 70s even with cloture it was still uh, the filibuster made actually doing anything too difficult so they introduced reconciliation, which was a process to handle some legislation uh, without a filibuster. This is all wild simplification, oversimplification. And um, sorry, is someone? Nope. Okay. Um, And in 2007, 
uh, as Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell begins using begins basically filibustering everything, taking advantage of the fact that you no longer have to actually you know talk on the floor. And since then, we've kind of been in this 60 vote Senate situation where in order for anything to get done outside of reconciliation, you have to have 60 votes from the Senate, which is just kind of a wild from the rest of American history is arguably against, I mean, is against the intentions of the way the Senate was designed. It's arguably itself unconstitutional. There were arguments to that effect um, and has basically rendered, I think, Congress completely dysfunctional for the last decade. And so that's, I mean, my my case for getting rid of the filibuster is just that everything it's supposed to do, it doesn't do. And then it also has all these terrible effects. And that if you if what you're worried about is well, what happens if if you're say you're a partisan Democrat, what happens if Republicans win you know a trifecta again? Well, in my view, what will happen is they'll campaign on stuff and then they'll not have any excuse for not doing it because the filibuster gives you an excuse to not do stuff because you can say, oh, well, the sixty votes like we can't do it anyway. They won't have an excuse, and so they'll be pressured to do it. And if it's unpopular. So either they either won't do the things they campaigned on, which would be not great because they would have lied to voters, or do the unpopular things um, and lose power as a result. So, in, like in my view, better to take the chance of bad legislation happening because the side that depends more on passing laws is going to, I think, win out in that than have a situation where no one can do anything. And that's a side that depends on dysfunction and stasis has the advantage. And in this particular case, in specific case of 2021, it's, you know, the filibuster is an obstacle to just doing the kind of things that need to be done as in basically as a matter of housekeeping, as a matter of democratic housekeeping. Right, which makes sense. I mean, we, we saw things stall under Barack Obama in his second term. But under Donald Trump, because of the fact that he had both the Senate, the presidency, things were moving very quickly. I am not sure if people are even aware of how many changes were actually made. If you look at you know, Joe Biden's first days, all he's been doing is signing executive orders to overturn what Trump has put in place. Without the filibuster being killed, which I am in great support of, will Joe Biden be able to do some of the housekeeping work that we need, not just to keep democracy moving forward, but to keep people safe and to help people heal coming out of this pandemic? There's a lot, can, there's, a, there, there's a lot that can be done through the executive branch alone. There, um, you know, there's, a lot of that can be done through a reconciliation bill, although you only get, I think, one or two of those a year. I think the real the real issue is 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 illustrated by the fact that Biden has been doing so much to kind of strip away what Trump did. That the thing about governing through executive through the executive branch, through executive orders, through administrative rules, through this sort of thing, is that. A, the courts take a greater interest in it. Like courts give wide deference to legislation and not as much deference to executive orders. Um, so you you run into kind of the courts taking action. And then if you if you lose uh, re-election or if the executive branch switches partisan hands, then you can easily undo it. So much of what Trump has d- did was through executive orders because you know, but even the first two years of his term when Republicans held the entire Congress, they just felt interested in legislating and couldn't do much of it. Um, 
the 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 absence of legislation and the reliance on executive orders ends up being a weakness if you want your stuff to stay last for the duration. And so I think Biden, if Biden wants to have a successful presidency, you know, yes, in the short term, you can just repeal stuff through executive orders. He can do things through executive orders affirmatively. But if you want to have a lasting impact on the country, if you want what you do to endure, legislation is the only way to go about it, right? I mean, think about, I mentioned No Child Left Behind earlier. No Child Left Behind has, in the 20 years since it was passed, become, you know, things about it have been abandoned, things about it have been uh, modified and changed, but the, the law is still on the books, right? Like the change it made to the American education system is still there. The Affordable Care Act has been, you know, attacked through executive branch actions for the last four years, but it's still there, right? The basic, the, the, the structure of the law is still there. It still has an impact on the American healthcare system. It's not going away. And that's the power of legislation that once it's, it's a, it's a heavy, it's a heavy, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to do. It's hard to pass big legislation, but once you do it, it's done. It's in the law. Um, and it, it changes the ground on what you fight. And so that's, that's why I think Democrats should repeal the filibuster that Biden should encourage them because they have far more to gain by just passing legislation than they do to lose. Um, by the possibility that their you know political opponents will also want to pass legislation. And there's a sense that we might be on the brink of maybe becoming from two parties to four. And I want to have you talk about that, that the possibility that the Republican Party, and there's been some conversation about the Republican Party splitting uh, with the more moderate Republicans moving over with the Trumplicans um, kind of moving into their own part as kind of extreme right wing, but also within the Democratic Party. When you think of the more progressive wing, and I'm thinking about, you know, the Bernie Sanders, AOC, um, and then the more moderate wing, which is where Joe Biden and maybe Kamala Harris would rest. Do you think that that is where we're moving so we're not so deeply entrenched in either the either or one or the other, right. but more options or more viable options on the table. So my, you know, my perspective on this kind of is starts from, I mean, I'm trying to figure out how I should start. I should say from the outset, I think things would probably be better off if we had more than two parties. Um, I For a, a couple of reasons. The first is that two party systems are inevitably zero sum and you get into what one scholar is called um because of a debt what is called a death spiral um mm -hmm. a doom loop is what he calls it much more evocative because it's a doom loop and the doom loop is where neither side can stand down because standing down means losing all power because it's again zero sum you either you either win a seat in Congress or you lose it. You either win the presidency or you lose it. And for part of, for highly polarized, highly uh, strong partisanship system, losing power means not just you not you're not just you know have to wait. You're kind of just shut out altogether. And so you have an incentive once in power to do everything you can to prevent yourself from losing it. And as I think we're seeing right now, this can lead a party to just kind of embrace democracy destabilizing actions um, that then 
you know, require a response from the other side, uh, which can in turn destabilize democracy. And all, all, all along you go until the whole thing collapses. This is kind of what happened with the Civil War. Um, so two-party systems produce doom loops. They, you know, because of uh, because of the nature of the zero-sumness of it, if you, you know, if you are someone... There are, there are many Americans whose views are not represented in a legislature because they don't really fit into either of the two parties. Um, yeah, and there's, I think there, 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 there's a whole bunch more that comes with two-party systems that's a problem that I think would be solved by a multi-party system. Um, the issue, and to get to your question, there are, you know, you can easily envision the divide and i think it's what you described it would be on the right kind of like a a moderate like a romney party a trump party and then you'd have like a biden party and a bernie party that's you know to use four men here you could use four women to have your you could have a uh, a nikki haley party a christy Rowe or sarah palin party an aoc party and a kamala harris party right you you can easily see how this would shake out um the problem is that our election system kind of disincentivizes anything more than two parties. That if you have single member districts, geographic districts, um, in which there is one winner, um, and there can only be one winner, and when it's first passed the post, meaning you don't need to get a majority, you just need to get the most votes, that if you had four candidate for parties vying for a house seat or a senate seat then you could create a situation where the you and your allies have more votes than the other guys maybe it, the AOC party and the Harris party they're obviously two different parties but they you know they're they they could be in a coalition together if they were in a parliamentary system but they're vying against each other in a, in a first past the post system and so together they have like 20% each and there's one, the other party has 10% and the other part is 30%. So the 30% party wins despite the fact that you like the left here has the most votes. And that's kind of what produces a two party system, right? No one wants to be in that situation. And so what you say is who, who are the other factions who are closest to me that we can have one bigger coalition that could get the 50 plus one. And you can think of the democratic party. It's basically or a two-party system is basically all the coalition forming happens before the vote and a parliamentary system is one where all the coalition forming happens after the vote. Um, But as long as you have first past the post, single member districts and kind of the presidency, which is a kind of a, you know, the biggest single member, the country is a single member district of a sort. um, You're not going to have a situation where a third party can win. And that means it's just going to stay a two-party system. So I think if we wanted a multi-party system, we'd first have to have reforms that make it possible for parties to win um, without kind of dooming the entire possible coalition. So you want, you know, uh, ranked choice voting. So you can kind of, um, you can no one wastes the vote because ever you just rank your options and whoever eventually gets the majority wins. Uh, you could have multi-member districts, which is, I think is, there's nothing in like, there's nothing in the law that says you can't do it. There's nothing, it's not, it wouldn't be unconstitutional. You just pass a law to, to do it, but a multi-member district would mean instead of 
Virginia having 13 House districts, it would just be a single Virginia district with 13 members. And then you, you know, whoever gets the the top 13 vote getters get the seats, um, which would allow parties to win, to multiple parties to run, you know, different factions within each party to run. To run. Um, you could have all kinds of combinations and it would make multi-party systems a little easier to develop. But that's, even if there's like a natural division point in the current parties, and I think there is, and I think that American politics is largely sustained more than two, until we change the rules of politics, we're kind of just going to have two parties. So that's where kind of the logic of the system goes, irrespective of what anyone actually wants. Now, before we go into our breakout rooms and folks, we're going to open up breakout rooms to have a conversation around democracy being fragile and, and what we can do, you know, as students, as community leaders, as members, what we can do to, to shore it up. Before we do that, I want to ask uh, one more question to Mr. Bowie, and then you're free to put your questions in the chat and we can have a little bit more of an open conversation. So we're coming up and we're thinking about midterm elections in the next two years. We're looking down the road to 2024 and, you know, Donald Trump might run again. As someone who keeps a firm eye on politics in this country, even racial politics, what are some of the things we should be looking out for with the midterm elections, as well as perhaps setting the stage for for 2024? I know it's a long time off, but it really isn't when you kind of look at it, right? I mean, that's that's a great question. I don't, I I kind of don't even know at this point. I think the one thing that um, we should all be paying attention to is, and to get back to what something I've said earlier. It's just the extent to which the uh, large parts of the Republican Party are turning pretty strongly against the idea that they should, that they can turn against the idea that it's okay for them to lose, um, turning against the idea that elections count if they're won by Democrats. And so I think it's happening right now. We should expect to see many more efforts to kind of basically restrict the ability of Democrats to win elections and put more obstacles in the in the way of voters to cast a ballot, to participate. And that's going to have an impact on 2022. You know, there are uh, statewide elections in Virginia and I think New Jersey this year. Uh, neither state has a Republican legislature, so it's probably not going to come and factor into the voting here, but it is true that Republicans, at least in Virginia, are calling for, you know, quote unquote, election integrity measures, which are basically just, you know, real election integrity uh, is important, you know, making sure that uh, there's enough funding for precincts, that there's enough machines to go around, that there is a good system for auditing. But what this election integrity is kind of just disenfranchising voters, and we're going to see more of that. One thing I think we're definitely going to see before 2024 is an attempt to rig the Electoral College to change the district the way states distribute electoral votes. So in Arizona, there's a lawmaker who introduced a bill that would let the legislature retroactively assign electoral college votes after voting's happen. So, you know, oh, we don't like how the voters chose, we're just going to assign them to someone else. I think that kind of thing is going to be, is going to happen and there's going to be attempts to do it. Um, and that's, I think, what people should be looking out for, right? They should be doing everything they can to make sure that they can vote in free and fair elections two years from now or a year from now and uh, four years from now. Thank you so much, Jamel Bowie. 
You have been listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K. Thank you for listening, and until next time, remember, words are a powerful medium that effectively examine critical moments in American history. So use yours wisely. Thank you.